0: This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working building in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Need a professional place to work from? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com.
1: This week, Meat and 3 is taking you to market and all over the world, from Newfoundland to Tunisia. Well, a lot of us think of, you know, the British Empire trading things like spices and sugar and silk. But you write that it actually began with, Salt cod from Newfoundland. <laughs> there was a port closure in Tunisia, which was horrible. I mean, it was months. Boats just setting on the water,
2: waiting to go, and they
1: couldn't go anywhere. And we'll learn about how markets have changed, whether because of their customers or the climate.
3: A few years ago, something around the 10 years, it was uh, totally different. It almost manifests itself to almost smelling like an old fire pit. When you, mm-hmm. you put it out, it has that sort of charcoal smell to it. It's not good for wine.
1: Join us this week on Meet and Three for our global market tour. And don't forget to subscribe to Meet and Three wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about innovators, career changers, entrepreneurs, food makers of all kinds who uh, make our lives so delicious. Uh, I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch.
1: And I'm your co-host, Valerie Lomas.
2: And Valerie, you you just got back from a couple of interesting trips, a a Big conference, Tell yeah.
1: Um, so last week I was in Miami at the National Association for Black Journalists Conference, uh, which was pretty amazing. I met, um, you know, just a lot of different journalists who I admire, including some podcasters. Oh, that's good, yeah. One of the co hosts of Another Round, uh, oh, her,
2: I love that <laughs> yeah, podcast, Tracy.
1: She put on a, a panel Can about we have her podcasting. On our podcast? I know, I was thinking, I'm like, how Does do I get these thing? like non food people? But apparently, she um, she hates like. Like milk from cows, so that could be an entry point, like does not drink milk. We've, we've lowered the standards.
2: <laughs> we're, we're really reaching for, uh, I, I just want to be her friend. She food just adjacent, seems like such a cool right?
1: Person. Just like food or maybe yeah. just a strong opinion about yeah. a food um, could be a great reason. But um, yeah, it was really awesome, really inspiring and just learned a lot, met a lot of different uh producers and people out here like us, Ethan, who are uh in this podcasting world. Uh but you had a pretty big day today. Uh I saw in the Wall Street Journal. The Wall
2: Street Journal, yes, yes. There's a very nice article about about the spice industry and changes in the spice trade and some of the new companies, including my own, that are uh that now exist, I guess. Um, right.
1: Because apparently there was a great <laughs> quote actually um from your from um your, Ori, my co founder. Your co founder. He said we need to Marie Kondo our spice it's, cabinet it's very true and I was like oh my gosh because I have like four bottles of ginger ranging from probably like two months to five years old each of them well and
2: that's the amount of time that you've had them <clears throat> alone, the amount of time that they existed before then
1: right so we need to Marie Kondo our spice cabinets our condiments um oh, good which good kind segue of Valerie Go, Ethan, can you introduce our Yeah, guest w- I'm today? so excited
2: to, to introduce Naomi Mobed, who is the founder and CEO of an amazing company making condiments, jams, pickles, chutneys called Le Bon Mago. Naomi, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: So uh, let's just jump right in. Tell us what is Le Bon Mago and, and where did the idea come from?
3: So Le Bon Mago literally translates into the hidden treasure. And so many of our flavors and our concepts had been buried because they're family recipes. They're ones that we use at home every day um, or have been used over generations, close family, distant family. So in the process of unearthing them, we decided to start a company, my mother and myself. So it's a woman-owned, woman-run business. And um, the most appropriate name was Le bon magot, magot meaning the treasure. So we're unearthing the treasure. Um, each, you know, each uh, preserve or condiment, we wanted it to look very unique, like a jewel in a jar or a set of jewels in the jar. Hence the play on the word treasure. Um, so we thought, you know, all in one, it was the most appropriate way to go. And
2: to Give us some examples, because you make such sure. interesting combinations of of not only... Uh, fruits mm. and vegetables, the flavors there, but also in the spices and the other the other flavors that you add. Give us some examples of some of the things that you make.
3: Sure, we um, our number one seller actually is a tomato and white sultana chutney with fresh ginger and garam masala. So the tomatoes are you know red vine, fresh tomatoes. We don't use anything frozen, nothing canned or processed. The tomatoes are diced and cooked in a very traditional way. You know, oftentimes what your listeners would be making at home. So in a slurry of sugar and acid, in our case, apple cider vinegar, um, and then with infused with fresh ginger, um, as well as a number of spices, including garam masala, which is a spice blend. Every kind of family, every individual has a different take on it in India. Um, it can be regionalized, but not necessarily. And dharam masalas can change from recipe to recipe. They can be sweet or savory. And so we have this blend that's infusing it. Um, you know, users will be able to taste cumin, uh, toasted cumin, uh, cloves, a little bit of coriander seeds, and it kind of comes together in this very warm jam-like Chutney. The color is a deep crimson. Um, yes, part of it comes from tomatoes, but Kashmiri dried chilies, which imbue a slight smokiness. Uh it's almost like uh North India's version of a poblano, kind of. And that um so that's our number one seller. Yes, that's one example.
2: That sounds amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's such a like beautiful description. Um, And I love what you're saying about like this blending of these flavors and the name of your company, Le Bon Magot, it's, I believe it's French. It is. (laughs) And, you know, the way you say tomato is so, so beautiful. And I'm just curious about this, like different blending of of places. So you've had quite the eclectic background of places you've lived, right? We
3: did. And we actually very deliberately, people have often asked, but you know, you're specializing in flavors of parts of Africa, Middle East, India, you know, and you're bringing all of these together, oftentimes in the same jar, um, in many cases, why create a French name for a company? And one of the reasons why I thought about it a lot, um, you know, yes, I am a Francophile, I admit it. But, you know, and, (laughs) you know, I've spoken French from a very young age because of the different countries we've lived in. However, I thought it was very important to allow people to use these products in any way, shape, or form. So we didn't want to create a name or a logo that, you know, um, implied any particular ethnicity. The products have to speak for themselves. There's no reason why the tomato chutney couldn't be drizzled on a beautiful piece of burrata. There's nothing to say that, oh, you've got to eat it with yellow lentils and rice because that's how it's traditionally been eaten. So there's so many numerous ways that one could play with these. You know, recently, for example, we had guests at home and I used, and we were doing canapes. I used a very traditional uh, polenta on which to build a canapé base with shaved, roasted asparagus and also using my spiced raisin marmalade, which has al hanout in it which smoked cinnamon, dries, ro- dried roast petals, black pepper, and cardamom. And we use that, but we also, so on top of the polenta, we had a pesto, a homemade pesto, a pistachio pesto, and then on top of that, the asparagus, the shaved asparagus, with a few of our spiced raisins. So as long as the flavors work and blend together, and the spices talk to each other, you know, there's there's no reason why we can't Stretch the envelope. What are some of the the most
2: unexpected uh, pairings or or applications of your of your uh, products that you've seen?
3: You know, actually, the one of the most unique, weird but amazing tasting comes from Chef Jahangir Meta. Um, he did a seared scallop. Actually, a brûléed raw scallop would be a more accurate term with our white pumpkin preserve he then took that preserve emulsified it in a vinaigrette and drizzled it on a uh, butter lettuce and then just shaved the scallop and tossed it with that it sounds really strange but it was amazing tasting because we actually use the what for the white pumpkin it's actually a cucuzza It's a Sicilian gourd. So it's very um, light. There's no bitterness to it. And we allow it to sit weighted so that it imparts water. Any any even mild bitterness that's in it just goes away in that process. We then cook it in a slurry of fresh lemon juice and cinnamon sticks. And then we add our spices in towards the very end along with toasted almonds. So it has this beautiful nutty quality, and then it's also infused with um, double strength, A-grade Madagascar and vanilla, um, and again, more cinnamon from Sri Lanka, um, nutmeg, mace, and cardamom. So it really sounds sweet. How can you use it in a savory application? He did, and very successfully.
1: I like what you said about as long as the spices are talking to one another. Um, I love this idea of like, you know, different like flavors, having a conversation with one another. Like they don't have to be glued at the hip and married to each other, right? They just have to, they have to work and be in conversation. And I feel like your, the chutneys and stuff that you make, they probably all have this overlying thing of this, this beautiful like conversation that they're having so maybe can you maybe tell us a little bit about what goes in your thought process of how you develop these pairings
3: well imagination is one part of it but you know my background i'm deeply rooted in history so i studied history politics economics and for me that's where the spices begin and that's where my inspiration begins It doesn't in at the level of, okay, I'm going to open up a recipe book and this is what I'm going to cook. I either want to evoke a memory from childhood um, or I know, you know, let's say my mother has cooked something, one of these pickles or a chars in a traditional way, but we're using it in a very non-traditional manner, perhaps pairing it with, um, you know, a different variety of cheese. Or cheese at all, because you know pairing a traditional char with a cheese is not necessarily commonplace. But for us, cheese was a part of every meal at our dinner table, so it was a very natural fit. At the same time, what I also like to do with pairings is see what was grown in that environment, um, in that location, and. I by grown in that environment I don't mean respecting traditional state boundaries. I'm talking about how traditional migratory patterns impacted how spices are grown and where. And oftentimes you find that when they're grown in a similar location, you can they actually do talk to one another and the pairings become natural, very organic, very fluid. You know, you're not searching for it. You're not just Excavating your imagination. So
2: your Sicilian white pumpkin with toasted almonds. There's a there's a Mediterranean sort of ethos there.
3: Well, there is. I mean, we call it a kukutsa because that's how it is more commonly known in America, but this is a bottle gourd, and it's an edible bottle gourd. Not all bottle gourds are edible, but this one in in Hindi we call a dudi uh, or a dodi in Gujarati. And it's actually eaten in Northern India, in Central Asia. And so really my inspiration was drawn more from that. And what I wanted to do, however, was play with the texture. So it's an ingredient that was found, um, you know, it was a jam that was eaten during celebrations, especially weddings, weddings. Um, or Naujots in my culture, which is like a bar mitzvah. And so it's kind of a coming of age and it's a religious ceremony. And after that, you have a feast. And at this feast, you have the sweet jam. And um, But I never really liked the textures. I found the texture either a little bit too thick or it was too sugary. So we play with those elements to create something that's a little bit more modern.
2: And I think, I mean, you personally have lived in so many places and come from such a, a, a religious background, which I think we can get into in a moment, with, with such a, a deep history. I th- Is it the oldest re- religion in the world? Is that right? It Zoroastrianism. is. Zoroastrianism? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'd like to hear more about what you were just talking about, how all of those influences, the places that you've lived, the cuisines you've encountered, the dishes that you've cooked and eaten – uh, traditionally and, and more uh, creatively, how have all of those come together to create the, the Bomago lineup?
3: Absolutely. Well, for me, first of all, my family was key to all of this. I moved, I was born in Karachi, in Pakistan, but moved away when I was about two years old, two to three years old. And, you know, um, my mother, though, was very experimental about food. And both my parents, actually, wherever we lived, it was very critical um, that we kind of assimilated. So my parents, for example, our first place when we moved was Iran. My parents learned Farsi. I had to learn Farsi, French. So we adapted and assimilated fairly quickly as a result of that. My parents were very big on ensuring that... um, You know, they spoke Farsi in the right kind of rhythm and accent and authentically rather than, you know, as what would be seen as a foreigner uh, living in Tehran. At the same time, mom took on very um, specific culinary techniques, making rice. To this day in our house, we make rice the Persian way. Um, What's
1: that? What's the Persian way to make we, rice?
3: Well, first of all, the grain of the rice is very important. Um, over here, we have not been able to access a rice called Dumsia. Dumsia means rice with a black butt, literally. So the base of the rice has a small black dot on it. But we use, you know, very good quality uh, basmati rice um, from India. But then what we do is we soak the rice. We, you first wash the rice. You then soak it in tepid water with salt overnight, ideally. Um, we actually use a slightly fermented rice, the fermented Basmati rice, to start with. So it's an older rice, the grain is bitter. it's anyway going to be looser. After the smoking, you throw, uh, after the soaking, you throw out the water, you clean out the rice, you, you throw the starch out, you boil it, and then you steam the rice. And if you're very lucky and you do it right, you get a wonderful crunchy base at the bottom called a tadil. It's become very trendy. I think every single, you know, food magazine from Savour to Bon Appetit um, talks about it.
2: Samin so, I mean, Nosrat has has opened up the world of tagines to uh, to yeah. mainstream American. And there food. Were, you know, Those absolutely. Are,
1: it's on the cover of a really popular book out right now, yeah. The Bottom of the Pot. Yes, yes. exactly. It's exactly. that. So I do know what you're referring to yep. now. It's become
3: very, <laughs> and, but it, you know, it is. Um, not everyone loves it, but you know, we love, love it, it at home. It? What's oh. not to love? I well, I agree with you completely, you know. But um, I love the crispy rice, but you can also layer the bottom with potato, mm. so then you get crispy potato with crispy rice and then the softer rice, or you can do it with even tortilla or a very thin pita or lavash bread that you layer, and then that becomes all together incredibly decadent
1: I love that because I feel like we're a little hesitant here at least you know in American cuisine to serve like rice with potatoes or rice with tortillas there's this whole like you know crazy like starch
2: on starch but it's very thin right right. yeah it's very
1: thin yeah like the way you described it sounds like we are really missing out on something special. So, all right, so, you know, so I- So we'll I, have to
2: come over to your house for rice is what we're saying. Yeah. Everybody's
3: invited.
1: <laughs> I know I sent you on a tangent with, well, how do you make Persian rice? No, but, no, no, <laughs> no
3: problem at all. But actually, no, it's it's really not a tangent because one of the things that we want to do with our products, our jams and preserves is, yes, they've been made with cheese and charcuterie in mind because we wanted nuanced flavor we didn't want to hit anybody over the head with just spice and chili for the heck of it. We really wanted something that was nuanced where every spice came through because the spices that we're using are incredible quality and they should be celebrated in and of themselves. So if you're spending a lot of time, for example, making rice, you know, you can certainly use, for example, our lemon sultana marmalade, to give you an example. There's a recipe called Shirin Polo in in Iran, and it's a sweet. It's a sweeter rice because it's made with um, barberries and orange peel, etc. If you want to make one version of it, you're doing it on a weeknight, and you don't have a lot of time to, you know, candy peel the mm-hmm. orange peel and, you know, uh, soak the barberries and cook them in butter and all the rest of it. You can use our jars, and you can use one of our jars and layer that within the rice. You know, maybe some crumble, some feta. You know, do something slightly differently to give you that flavor, if not necessarily exactly that authentic dish. Because we all live very busy lives. And, you know, as much as we would love to be able to cook from scratch every single day, the reality is many of us are rating Whole Foods or whichever other grocer is near you or your deli to get fresh food on the table. This is another way, yeah. you know.
2: I mean, one of the things that, at least to my mind, what sets... Persian and, and Zoroastrian culinary traditions, mm-hmm. apart from really any other cuisine that I've come across, is that that sweet, savory, sour balance, those three yeah. elements, or even just sort of sweet and sour as a savory, an element of a savory dish. Um, could you talk more about that, uh, that as, as a, an influence where that came from, but then also how you incorporate it into your, both, both the products that you make, but also the, the dishes that you cook sure. more broadly?
3: It's all about balance. So nothing that is overly hot, overly salted, overly sweet. Although, yes, our white pumpkin preserve, yes, is definitely on the sweet side. But it's in in the main with this trinity, you're talking about hitting a balance so that it's not jarring the senses and it's easily digestible. Um, you know, that's what we're really looking looking for and looking at. Um, Yes, in Zoroastrian food, which is inspired from Persian food, as well as from, um, you know, North Indian and food from Gujarat, it's a blend, because ultimately, as Parsis and Zoroastrians, we left, you know, Iran, traditional, you know, Persia, and we migrated to India. Um, You know, the Essentially, we were refugees, and we were taken in um, into an area of India called Gujarat. And as a result, we started assimilating, and we took on a lot of the local food habits. So you'll see with Parsi food, there's actually a superb book that's come out of a chef in Canada. Her name is from Mavalvala, and she has one of the most interesting books out right now on purely Parsi cuisine. You know, a lot of these traditions have not been written down. Um, And so you now have scribes, food scribes, as well as other parts, you know, other people who are now trying to preserve parts of the culture. Um, in a way that hasn't really been done previously. So we're such a small community. Yeah. There was a beautiful you know.
2: article in the New York Times, the T Magazine, the New York Times Style Magazine, by Lagaya Mashan, who is a former guest of ours here on, on, the, on the podcast, about uh, Parsi food in Bombay and and the dying traditions, the chefs who... Whose kids don't want to be chefs anymore? <laughs> the recipes, the techniques that are. I think are his article, yes, was
3: on the Iranian, the Iranian Parsi restaurants, yeah, and exactly. yeah, yeah, In that Monday. was a very good article. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, for those of us who who might not know a lot about Parsi and you said Zoroastrian, can you maybe just explain a little bit about what that is referring to?
3: Sure. Zoroastrianism is a monotheistic religion. It's one of the oldest in the world. And it was the institutionalized religion of the Persian Empire, um, which, you know, covered, you know, a huge chunk of the world at that time. Um, However, over time, through invasions, migrations, etc., the population became smaller and smaller. So now Zoroastrians, um, you know, are... Pretty much, they live throughout the world, but the core, the core um, population is concentrated within India, with small pockets in Canada and in Houston, Texas. So in the U.S., Um, there are obviously a few Zoroastrians also still left in Iran, Iraq, um, you know. But predominantly, the largest population is still in India. But it's a you know because of the focus on assimilation, and really not having a nation state of one's own. Um, You know, there's been a lot of intermarriage, a lot of blending of food cultures, etc. So the community has become very small. So like I said, we number probably, you know, don't quote me on this, but probably about 100,000, 120,000 maximum worldwide.
2: And, small. and some of the key ingredients of Zoroastrian cooking, the barberries that you mentioned, which is a, a very tart, kind of sweet, uh, very small berry, almost like a dried cranberry. It is. is that a... But,
3: you know, again, you know, I encountered Zedish or barberries yeah. when I grew up in Iran. So when I, you know, Parsis and Karachi, which is where my family is from, and from Pakistan, were really not cooking with barberries every day. Yeah. You know, a lot of that culture was kind of swept out and now has been re-borrowed, but yet some of those, you know, the cuisine and the traditions have been kept up in Iran. So it kind of has come back to Parsi's in a slightly different way. Um, I wouldn't say that Barbaries are traditional to Parsi cuisine, per se, but... It's very much part of what we encountered in Iran, and you know that's what we use at home to make zenesh polo, you know, yeah. which is a rice made out of the barberries or you know. So, what are some of those
2: ingredients, ingredients that are, that stand out to you as as iconic in in Parsi cuisine?
3: In pure, if you're looking at pure Parsi cuisine, um, pure whatever that means, yeah. but you know something that is um, more traditional, I would say use of a lot of vegetables and lentils. So lentils go a long way, and uh, Parsi food is all about simplicity. Uh, During feasting, feast times, yes, you can go all out, but everyday cooking is about simplicity. And yellow lentils, white rice, vegetables, legumes, are a big, you know, a central tenet of that. And also use of spices that are around you. Most traditional Parsi cuisine is really about what you can find and what you can forage for locally. Um, It's not about, you know, ordering the most expensive piece of lamb and, you know, cooking that. It's all about what can be found and foraged locally.
2: Uh, Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay tuned.
0: This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, and a MacBook Pro running Pro tools. You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass. That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718 362
2: Three five three nine. And we're back. Uh, we're joined this week by Naomi Mobed, who is the founder and CEO of Le Bon Mago. We were just talking about the the intricacy, the the beauty of Zoroastrian and Parsi and Persian food. But uh, I'd like to get into a little more detail on, on your business and, and the career transition that you made from banking to start the company. Tell us about that decision to go from, from a, a successful career in banking to, to
3: starting a, a niche food company. Well, I had actually moved back from Dubai um, about four years ago and was trying to figure out what I was going to be doing. With the rest of my life. Um, Like so many people um, who go through a midlife crisis, um, I wasn't really happy with what I was doing. Um, You know, I was actually working for a fintech in Dubai. I wasn't really happy living there, and I was kind of searching for something that I'd always wanted to do. So I really thought that I was going to throw everything out the window and just go to culinary school for the sake of doing it because. I'd always wanted to do something within food. So I thought this would be my next step. When I came home, I you know, was talking to my mother and I was talking to friends. And for many, many years now, all I could ever talk about was recipes and the evolution of recipes and how I would change this or that. You know, we couldn't go, None of us could ever go out to eat without me dissecting something on the table. Frankly, it was getting very irritating and very boring for everybody. So finally, my mother said, you know, you either have to do something about this or you have to shut up because enough is enough. You know, so she challenged me and she said, what's the worst that's going to happen? You're either going to fail miserably. You're going to pick yourself up again. Your ego will take a bruising, but pick yourself up and you'll move on. Or you never know. Few people may like it. It could work for you and see where it takes you. So that's how we started. And the first thing that I needed to do, though, um, was determine how and where I was going to play. So originally I thought, okay, I'll go to culinary school, get a job just working the line or even just chopping onions at a local restaurant. And that's really where I thought I was going to start. One weekend I heard about a course Called the Food Printer, uh, the Food Printer <laughs> course, and it was basically a weekend of how you can kind of get into the retail business. Where was the course? It was in New Jersey. Okay. Don't ask me exactly where, but somewhere in New Jersey, close to us, um, and close to us in Princeton. So I went on that course, and with what I learned, I thought, "Wow, okay, instead of." You know, I was always a little bit reticent about starting up a restaurant because of the investment. And honestly, if you don't, everybody wants to start a restaurant. It's lovely, romantic, great. But the realities of running that business, it's hard graft. It's serious investment. And I really wanted to learn much more about the industry before I went down that route. So I was a bit reticent. And I went on this course and I very naively thought wow, this is great. You know, not only will I be able to run this business and run it remotely with one foot in London, which is where I was living before I moved to Dubai and what I consider home. So one foot in London, one foot in Princeton, it's going to be far less investment. So there was a lot of, there were all these assumptions, which within the first month or so of the business were proved completely incorrect, by the way. Um, But that's how I got in. I got in thinking this was going to be a more flexible way of um, living my passion. I was completely incorrect. Certainly living my passion, yes. But yeah, it does take a lot of investment. It's a serious decision. So for anybody else who's going down this route. You've got to think about this very seriously. Don't do it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, that too. But um, really think about it very seriously. In some way, my naivete really helped because I just kind of went barreling in there. And one of the first things that we did, though, is we validated some flavors. So we came up with an original three jars, three flavors of product. And I went to go see the stores where we were customers, people who knew us, people who knew how my family ate, our food pedigree, um, you know, basically my mom's cooking chops, my cooking chops, and, you know, see how, how, what people thought of it. So we had some, you know, wonderful local grocers, specialty store owners, as well as actually Whole Foods in Princeton, because we wanted to see how a national retailer would react. And all of them literally said, oh, you know, when you're ready, come back to us. We would be interested in the flavors. But all of them kind of laughed it off because as one of the gentlemen told me who owns a store in Princeton called Bon Appetit Fine Foods, he comes from the Dean and DeLuca world and he said, oh, if I had, you know, a dollar for every banker who came to see me who wanted to go into the food industry when I lived in New York. You know, I'd be a millionaire by now with my own island. So, you know, there was always this kind of disbelief that we would actually go through it. We did. And, did, you know, the rest is history. Where is do you think
2: that disbelief came from? Did it have to do with with how unfamiliar people were with the types of flavors you were presenting? Or was there something else?
3: I think because food has become such an important part of our popular culture. And I don't mean just eating it or cooking it. In fact, I think people are cooking less today than they were previously. But it's more about popular culture and the voyeurism that comes with food. You're looking at Instagram, Facebook, Food Network. There's a lot of watching of food that takes place. So oftentimes people, with a little bit of money in their pocket and, you know, see the romance and the allure of it. They're not seeing the blood, sweat and tears that goes on behind the scenes. And there's a certain mystique that comes with working in the food industry now that people are going after. Chefs are rock stars, you know, and all of a sudden that has become, um, you know, So I think that's become very important and I think a lot of people see that and, you know, get attracted to the industry. So, but then once they kind of see what is involved, they may get scared and not go through with it. In fact, at the kitchen that we cook at in the North Fork, we actually make our products all the way on the North Fork of Long Island in wine country. And we, at the same time that we were starting up our business, There was another person who also came to start up their business, um, somebody from another one of the U.S. banks, and you know, after about a month, he decided not to go ahead. Yeah, I'm not sure who's the smarter one, by the way, (laughs) him or me. But you know, he decided. We all think we should have gotten out earlier. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I was actually I was watching some like daytime talk show this morning. And they were talking about switching careers. And they were saying, you know, it's it's good to go about it in a very pragmatic fashion. Like, decide what it is that you want to do, how long it will take you. Like, do you need more training? How long will it take to maybe get the business up to speed so that, you know, one of the big purveyors like Whole Foods might be interested? Because often, I've learned, they kind of want to see that you can actually Um, produce and stock once they contract with you. Um, And I was just thinking, I was like, wow, if I had done that math, because it was basically like, do the math. How long will it take you? How much will it cost you? And then you can decide, is it worth it? And I realized, like, this is not a question that I asked myself.
2: Me neither. Before
1: switching careers, if I
2: had asked Dev, the answer would have been no. Right? Definitely, like, don't do that. How long?
1: How long will it take you? And how much will? How much money will it cost you in that interim and period? Then,
2: and then double the amount of money and an extra <laughs> exactly. year on the triple amount of time. the amount
1: of time. Yeah, right? Yeah. And I was just like, geez, like, that's a really a good question. That if you are considering changing careers." Um, you can ask yourself, like, is, is it worth it?
3: I think anybody considering a career change and moving into food, you have to define for yourself what food means. So are you going to go the culinary route or are you going to go the manufacturing route? They are two very different routes. Um, you know, for me, I come from more of a culinary background, And what I wanted to do was create products that had the quality. Um, I didn't want the flavors dumbed down. I wanted to use amazing ingredients, whether it was produce, spices. If I used saffron, which we do in one of our products, I wanted the highest quality saffron. Um, It was you know, we don't use essences; we use extracts. Um, it's very difficult, constantly, to work that balance as you're scaling up and you're becoming bigger, and you're looking to produce, produce for the likes of a Whole Foods or a Kroger, or you know, which is ultimately where you need to be. In order for people to, more people to recognize you, buy from you, and increase your sales with volume, so I'm, I know I'm constantly walking that knife edge um, between great culinary and scale.
2: And you also, I mean, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I think. As an entrepreneur, you get into food thinking you're going to be the one you like to cook and you think you're going to be the one doing the cooking. And, and then you realize, actually, maybe you're doing the cooking, but you're also doing a, a thousand other things. And then at some point, you're not doing the cooking anymore. And you have to be good at all the other parts of the business that are often not the the inspirational, creative things that got you into it. How have you managed that transition as your company has grown?
3: Well, with great difficulty. My favorite part of the business is the product development, yeah. i.e. the cooking part of it. And as I'm growing bigger, I have been spending less and less time on that, which A, I don't like personally, and B, I still need products developed um, for my business to be able to grow and sustain itself. So that's that in itself is a big challenge. But in terms of actually producing and making our products, It's very important that you have the right partners. And whether you have your own kitchen or facility, you need the right staff to be able to work there. Now, I'm very lucky. Um, We rent out, you know, a very small uh, facility. Um, But I have my own chef who is a sous chef in a number of very notable restaurants in the Hamptons and on the North Fork. And he also works with me part of the time. And he, you know, again, I trust him with the quality, et cetera, et cetera, but we are on the premises a lot of the time. So, you know, it's a constant balancing act, especially if you're working with, fresh ingredients and fresh fresh produce. Therein lies the risk, you know, because if you have a situation where let's say there's a blizzard and you've, you know, accepted, um, you know, several hundred pounds of a produce item, but you can't get to the facility to be able to cook it, you know, you're gonna have to throw all that produce out. That's a risk. We knew that going into it. And some people may consider that very wasteful. um, And therefore, so many people have said, why aren't you moving to canned tomatoes, for instance, or, you know, frozen tomatoes? We still haven't been able to find the right quality because we're so keen to ensure that the flavors are where we want them to be. So it's a balancing act.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I I think that's just something that, like, you know, obviously we're like all here and in food because we feel strongly about food, about the the culinary side, the product development side. But you know, then you you're asking yourself like, what to do with these hundreds of pounds of produce that you've got to toss, or or maybe you need more glass jars or whatever it is to like get your product moving and the business side of things. So thank you for kind of like touching on that and. I mean, do you feel like because of your background, even though it was in fintech, which is um, which is like a very narrow part of business, um, but do you feel and how has that kind of helped you making those decisions as the owner of this company?
3: You know, actually, I was um, before I, I moved to Dubai, I was in London and I was in working for banks. Um, I think what really helped me was... First of all, I was in sales, in transaction banking. So, you know, understanding what a sales process was and how to structure it and what the discipline was. Yes, the industry is different. The numbers are different. But I had a basis, I had a structure from which to start. I also knew what tools I needed, whether today or tomorrow, that were going to help me get there. You know, so for example, when I first started my business, it was only me, right? So I was working off an Excel spreadsheet, for instance, which was my very basic CRM tool. Mm -hmm. We're now migrating because there are more of us working on the business, you know, certainly from a sales perspective. We are migrating to a CRM tool that will help capture you know, our call reports and, you know, coordinate on certain clients where we have multiple touch points. So, you know, those are the types of disciplines that I brought in. Also, you know, knowing that I need to ensure that I'm working on a roadmap. Whereas, you know, when I was in banking, I worked for very well-known brands. I could walk into my customer's office because people know the brand. And, you know, that, that gave me my, my credibility, my pedigree. Right. With this, we were starting from scratch. There were customers who were not even, or potential customers who were not even going to pick up the phone to you. So how do you, you know, build that trust with them and also, you know, build enough trust to let them know that you're actually building a brand? You're not simply selling product. So all of those elements are things that I had learned, you know, back in the day and, you know, basically just reorienting them in a different industry.
2: Yeah, I think this is a a hugely overlooked aspect of food entrepreneurship, something that anytime I have the opportunity to give somebody advice, it's always learn to sell, learn the, the skill, the discipline, the process of a sales cycle. Because, you know, you, you start a food business, you think I'm going to make something amazing and then everybody's going to buy it and, you know, like mission accomplished. And it, it unfortunately doesn't usually work out like that. And and to be able to to be a good salesperson beyond just moving product, but, but building a demand, building a, I mean, exactly what you said, a brand.
3: I think you need an anchor somewhere. So coming back to this point about changing careers, you need to have an anchor somewhere. So, you know, I had a deep anchor in sales, sales development, developing and building a brand and what that meant. So even though the culinary side for me did not extend beyond home cooking, that was kind of the passion side of it that came through. um, You know, I was confident enough in one set of skills to know that I could compensate, you know, for another and, and work it through. You know.
2: In our our final few minutes, we're gonna throw some fun, lighthearted questions at you. Are you ready? Absolutely. Go for it. You wanna start?
1: Favorite end of summer vegetable.
3: (laughs) Favorite end of summer vegetable. Or
1: fruit. You seem like a vegetable kind of girl. I like
3: both. But that's okay. I'll answer both. Uh So for me, this is very end of summer, early autumn. Okay any kind of squashes I love courgettes and squash so butternut squash in fact I'm working on a recipe right now for a butternut squash um butternut squash galette with gorgonzola to be paired with our carrot and fruit conserve with jaggery and coriander so you know yeah so we're working on that recipe but I really do love my my squashes Mm. Oh, I like what's yours? a
1: girl after my own heart because I recently made something with pumpkin and jaggery. Oh really? And it was okay. delightful. What's
2: your favorite end of summer vegetable? Oh I-
1: I'm going to I'm going to go with cherries. Mm. Can I put them in the end of summer? Group?
2: Yeah, m- yeah mid-summer,
3: mid summer. Mid, yeah, mid to end yes, of summer. I love of, cherries. You're, for, you. you're from the south, maybe? maybe <laughs> yes. seasons are a little
1: different. Yeah, I think I'm putting them at end of summer because I've kind of missed them so far this summer. So in my head, in my head, I'm is. like, I still have time to get some. So, what about you, Ethan? Mm. <laughs> uh,
2: I, I do really like a good ear of corn, like really sweet corny mm. summer corn. Um yeah, maybe that might be
3: Well we're from I'm from you know, I live in New Jersey. So the corn from New Jersey, the white corn in particular, is amazing. You know, toss that on a pizza or on a flatbread with some parmesan and you're good to go. Yeah, you don't even have to cook it. Or you don't even have to cook it. Shave it
2: right off the cob into a onto onto a pizza or into a pasta or something like that. Absolutely. Um, if you could pick, uh, only one kitchen tool to use for the rest of your life, what would that be?
3: My chef's knife.
2: Okay. What's the, what's the, the weirdest, uh, use you've ever put your chef's knives to? (laughs) What have you used it for that nobody else has used it? for?
3: No, my chef's knife is sacred. Okay. It will never open a box or a carton. Um, or wedge anything out. It is what it is. It is a chef's knife. Ethan,
1: it sounds like you've got a story there, but maybe we'll save that for another. What are you doing with your chef's knife? I have
2: this, like, I have a a Chinese cleaver, a Chinese-style cleaver that I've had for probably 15 years that we used to use uh, for all kinds of things, but including... And we would we would blow torch. when i was the pastry chef we, we would use it to cut chocolate and other things and we would get Ooh. the knife really hot with a blowtorch, and then it would just like run right through chocolate without like
1: butter yeah
2: like butter you Ooh. got
1: it i'm just
2: like i'm always interested in how people are, are taking tools that everybody has access to and and using them in their own particular way what's the what's the philosophy behind a, a tool when you look at at the standard way of doing it What's what's the
3: other way? What's the way? To... But that makes sense. But yeah, I use my chef's knife for mm-hmm. everything. Thin blade, I use it for oh, yeah. everything. Um
1: Do we have time for one more? Yeah, two more. Two more. Sure, okay. Um it. if you could have any superpower, what would it be?
3: Getting a Michelin star. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't have that superpower. That's a my good my one. skills are very humble. Well, so when you, when you open your your restaurant, you can just
1: yes. hire a chef that will get your no,
3: restaurant. No, a no, no, no. The fun <laughs> is to be able to actually do the work. <laughs> okay. To do the work and to you know develop the palate and to develop the skills. I mean, that's part of you know working in this industry. Uh, you have access to so many amazing chefs. Um, like yourself, Ethan, who have, you know, done the work, put in the work and just learning from them has been an amazing process. Um, So, you know, we were talking about inspiration very early on. Yeah. Working with some of them, having them taste your product, um, you know, sourcing spices through some of them. It's just opened up a whole, whole world and a different way of thinking about, you know, what we've always done in the kitchen.
2: All right, final question. Uh, the best meal you've had that cost less than 5 or
3: $10? Anything cooked by my mom. Oh, good answer. No, she's really good, yeah. actually. She's very strong on technique. Uh, my mom strongly believes in technique. And she's very purist when it comes to using certain techniques, whether it's for Persian food and the rice, and she will not deviate from that, or whether it's certain, you know, French practices for, you know, certain things that she's cooking. I will tend to blend. Um, Mom is very much of a purist, very specific.
2: What's her her kind of classic dish, the one that you feel is representative?
3: It depends on what culinary... um, really what region she's cooking from, but she's very, very well known for her rice. In fact, actually, yesterday was her first day where she had a full-time job working in the pharmaceutical industry, so she's just left that, and yesterday was her first non-working day in, you know, over 40, 50 years worth of working. So it's like her retirement. I don't want to say retirement because she's coming to work for Le Bon Mago (laughs) full-time. But awesome. I'm telling you, without – I mean, she's barely, you know, a couple of hours into the day, I was getting calls from people who wanted her to cater X, Y, or Z. Um, you know, so oh. I think with or without Le Bon magot, she's she's set. That's great.
2: Uh, well, Naomi, tell our listeners where they can find out was, more about you and your work and, and find your products.
3: Great. You can um, – you know, find out about our company and myself and our products on our website, www.lebonmagot.com. Uh, social media is at bon Mago. Can I just spell it for people in case
2: the, the radio for L- the
1: non-francophiles? Sure, L
2: E B O N M A G O T. Yeah, I get that perfect. M A G O T.
3: Yeah, that's perfect. Um, and you know, we have a retailers listing on that site. We also have an email address. So. If there isn't a store near you, you can order online, shoot me an email, and we can tell you exactly where to go.
2: That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. And I, I mean, I wish we could talk for another hour. We, there, you have so many good stories. Um, anyway, <laughs> thanks for joining us. You can reach us at whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. Uh, you can find me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram.
1: And you can find me on Instagram at foodieinnewyork or my website, foodieinnewyork.com.
2: Thanks to Amanda, our awesome sound engineer, and to the Red Crickets for our theme song, Blind. See you next week.